Well, hey, everybody, Jonathan Doyle with you here. Thanks so much for taking a moment to check out the next wonderful interview with Mr. Nathan Lewis. We've had the pleasure of having him on the show several times here at the Supply Side podcast, and today's episode is one of the absolute best. We are going deep into The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, one of the foremost proponents of MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. So we're going to unpack some of the key themes in the early phases of the book and as always you're going to hear Nathan's wisdom his insight there's so much here for everybody now if you're seeing this on YouTube please make sure you've subscribed hit that notification icon it makes a big difference so we can let you know when uh, next episodes are coming out if you're hearing this on the podcast version please make sure you've subscribed and if you are not getting our regular updates go right now to SupplySidePodcast.com. I've got a great offer for you there. We can put your details in and make sure we get you the latest updates as they happen. So let's do this. We're going to talk about modern monetary theory with Mr. Nathan Lewis. Mr. Nathan Lewis, welcome back once again to the Supply Side Podcast. Always great to have you with us. And today you and I are going to take the first step on a journey into the fictional realm of MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, or as Jim Rogers always calls it, more money today. So we're going to be talking about Stephanie Kelton's new book, and I think we're going to do a a real service here for people. The the Google search trends on MMT are quite extraordinary. The amount of traffic of people still just typing in MMT, what is it? So I think there's there's obviously a genuine interest. There's a whole bunch of stuff I want to unpack with you. We're just going to talk about the intro in the first chapter. Give us your overview. Well, I've got a bunch of questions, but on your first reading, your experience with MMT so far, proponents want to describe it as purely a descriptive mechanism. They're saying all MMT does is just describe what's actually happening rather than some of the other models. On your first reading, what did you take away? Yeah. So it was interesting because I decided that we were actually going to read the book and, and The Deficit Met by Stephen Kelton. And and try to engage in a, in a one-sided debate, if you will. Give them their time on the podium and see what they had to say, so to speak. Uh, and I've also read Soft Currency Economics by Warren Mosler, who she refers to a number of times. And I was kind of ready for certain arguments because I was kind of thinking, if I was going to write a book like this, and what would I say? I was ready for economic theory to be tortured and abused in certain predictable ways, which it has been in the past. Um, there was actually a book, I don't remember the exact year, but I think it was around 1670 <laughs> that took on some of the same topics. I actually read, read that book too. But so my impression of the deficit myth and, and MMT as it's described in there, and it is for a popular audience, so it doesn't get into too much detail, but it's real insubstantial all the kind of arguments I was ready for, it didn't really appear. It's kind of just like wishful thinking, which is interesting. What people I think can take away from this is that there's just really not a whole lot to it. It's a big, just poof ball, it seems to me. So in a moment, I want to go to some of the absolute core principles to give people, because we're going to have a range of listeners here. We're going to have some sophisticated analysts and investors. Mm. We're going to have some people who come across the content because they've just got a, a broad interest in understanding it. 
is it its current popularity? Can we argue that its current popularity, particularly with legislators, is that because it sanctions aspects of profligate spending? So that if you simply want to pork barrel or spend more or justify, MMT gives you a kind of quasi academic license to do. Yeah. And it, it is toxic to our current political system because we have this Congress and so forth, which has been unable to restrain itself for 50 years, really since, uh, since the Johnson administration handing out goodies in terms of welfare and social services of various sorts. And before that, spending a lot of money on the military. So it's, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a new drug for, for people who have been addicts for a long time. And one of the things that's happened in the last few years, it, 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 they can reach a certain level of restraint, right? Congress reached this point where for a long time, from 1970 to 2009, they had deficits, but they were 3 to 5% of GDP deficits, the, the largest deficit since, since World War II, since there was actually wartime, was about 5.4%, I think, in 1983. And that's because of the recession in 1982, very bad recession. So it wasn't just spending money, it was the fall off in revenue from the recession. So Congress at least managed to restrain itself to some degree. And now we're it, through this MMT very arguments, now we're running 15% of GDP deficits in peacetime, something happened to their brains. <laughs> and this book help us, helps us figure out what it is, I think. So let's pick up some of those opening trends. First, in the introduction, Stephanie Kelton, I guess, channels the Rahm Emanuel line of never letting a crisis go to waste. So it's quite dramatic in its sense. And I, in my notes here, I said there's a sense in her writing that if it wasn't for MMT, people would be dying in the streets. And there would be that it's this sort of white knight mentality that using MMT, the government can come to the rescue. And right. there's a constant reference to in this introductory phase where she's talking about moving from a focus on balanced budgets. So she said, we really got to completely stop thinking about this idea of balanced budgets altogether. Right. And we need to talk about using this idea of functional finance to create a more human society. And exactly what a more human society is, is never quite defined. And we'll get into that in later chapters. But let's talk first in this first chapter. She's talking about this idea of we must not think of federal finances, sovereign finances, as remotely like a household budget. So she goes to great lengths with this, that most of us listening to this, if we were to produce a money printing machine in the basement, we would soon find ourselves in significant problems. And we also, she says, that we think of our own finances in terms of we can theoretically only spend what we have. So she wants to get us out of this mindset that the government is nothing like us. Take us through that. What, what's your take on that paradigm? She's basically saying that we need to disabuse ourselves of this idea that governments even remotely need to pursue balanced budgets. They can produce, print as much as they want. The only issue is inflation. 
what's your take on that core thesis? Yeah. Throughout, throughout the book, there, there's, a number, there's a, a number of assertions that are made, which MMT theorists in the past, they refer to the chartalists, which were these people from about 1900, suggested as suggestions. Or it, even today, the MMT people may, may offer as suggestions. But then she treats it as, as if things are already being done that way. For example, she says, what the way things work is that Congress just decides to spend money and the Fed just gives them the money and they spend it. So spending is actually financed by the Federal Reserve, not taxes and sale of bonds. That's not, that's not really true. The Treasury has an account at the Federal Reserve. Now, you, you can say, oh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are just essentially one entity, it's just the government. And, but even if, if you look at it that way, the Treasury actually has an account at the Fed, it's a checking account, and you can see where every dollar comes from that goes into that checking account. And every dollar that, comes from, that goes into that checking account is from taxes and the sale of debt. The Federal Reserve is specifically banned from just giving the government money. You can't, it, it, the Federal Reserve can loan money to banks, but it can't loan money to government. And the Federal Reserve can buy the corp- bonds of corporations, but it can't buy bonds from the government directly because being essentially both sides of the government, that would amount to just printing money. Now, theoretically, you could have a situation where the Fed just prints the money. The Congress just says, let's spend a trillion dollars on Medicare, Medicare, and the Fed just prints the money. And then so what the chartalists would say 100 years ago is that they, would, they had these theories where they would put the money out and then it would be sucked back by taxes. So it was first the money goes out and then it comes back in taxes. Um, but the, so that was a proposition, but that's not how it works today. So there's this funny, it's like, oh, we this, well, I had this amazing realization that things don't really work the way they, people say they work. And pretty much things do work the people, way people say they work. And she just made stuff up out of thin air. <laughs> Let's get into that because in the first chapter, she references, so we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of tabs and stabs, which is what you're yeah, alluding to. Exactly. So yeah. She says that she references a, a speech by Margaret Thatcher in 1983, where Thatcher says the state has no source of money other than the money people earn themselves. If the state wishes to spend more, it can only do so by borrowing your savings or taxing more. Now, this is where the shift really begins. So, before reading Kelton, she, she would argue that people believe the government needs our taxes, right? So for the government, we the government has no money apart from, as Thatcher would say, the money that it gets from us. So it taxes first and it borrows, and then the final step is the government spends. So what MMT theorists are postulating, what Kelton's saying is that's completely incorrect. I will give a credit and say that the vast majority of the population would assume that's correct, that the government is sitting around desperate for revenue and the only way it can get it is to tax and borrow before spending. So what they introduce here is this STABS methodology where the government spends currency into existence first. So the first step isn't taxation, it's actually spending first. Now, Mosler and Kelton argue that's the case because you couldn't pay a tax if there wasn't currency already in existence. So that currency first came from somewhere. Mm. So 
the idea is so Mosler, you know, there's this scene in the book where Kelton goes to visit Mosler at his, you know, West Palm Beach palatial yeah. house. And Mosler basically, and she asks him, she says, Why does the government need our taxes? And then this is, there's this idea, which I find quite chilling when I read it, that the mm-hmm. only reason the government wants our tax is to provision itself. So that without people paying, uh, people, uh, taxes force people mm-hmm. to work, uh, right. to become doctors, lawyers, judges, police officers, so that then they can pay the sovereign or the end of the government in its own currency. That kind of ticked and triggered the Rothbardian tripwire because it was like the go- they're arguing essentially that the governments are doing us a favour. They could send us all to gulags and make us work, but they're so generous and kind to us that they allow us to work to get their currency so then we can give it back to them in taxes. So can you give us your take on that tabs versus stabs? Do we tax first? Does the government spend first and provision itself through taxes? What do you make of all that? Good, yeah. It's interesting that it, it is communism with, you know, Soviet communism, but just like this little veil, because he uses the example of his children. And yeah. being children, they are required to have chores. Yeah. They have to do little things around the house. And it's really no different than Soviet communism, but it's okay because it's a family, of course, but they have to do it, right? The kids have to mow the lawn or take out the trash or something like that. And he, he was able to apparently motivate them more by making a little game. He would hand out a sort of household currency actually it's, it's business cards but it's like a currency he said you can earn my earn money <laughs> by mowing the lawn but then you, at the end of the day you have to pay me ten dollars of this money or else presumably there's some kind of punishment you go to the little family gulag <laughs> right you know it's a funny story and but it's treated as if it was some kind of like amazing insight into the way things are actually done today and there's a, there, like I said, there's a history of this. There's these things that have been said along those lines in the past, 100 years or 200 years ago. And in the, the, the distant past, before the modern invention of the income tax around 1800, uh, a lot of taxes were like this. You had, it was, the simplest would be a poll tax. Just everybody has to pay $5,000 a year. Now, and, or else you go to jail. Else there's some, go to the gulag, you're some kind of horrible punishment. And so obviously people had to work to get their 5,000 bucks or in those days it was an ounce of gold or something like that, or else they would, you know, be shipped off to the concentration camp, literally prison. And it turned out to be a really disastrous tax system because inevitably there's people who couldn't make the payment. Something happened and they couldn't make the payment, even if it was very small, right? Even today, if you went out down the street and you said, you know, American families pay up a thousand dollars cash and you can't use credit cards, you can't borrow the money. You just got to pay up. Millions of people would go off to jail. Hmm. And that's why we don't do that way anymore. Every tax we have today is based on a transaction where the money exists to pay. An in- you don't have to pay an income tax unless you have income, which means you have money to pay the tax because you, hmm. you got paid. Right? You don't have a sales tax unless you have a sale, which means you had the money to buy the goods. Uh, so actually, in every the way it's set up that way, and if you want to avoid all taxes, what do you do? You don't work. The reason we have uh, pe- reason people work 
is not to, is not to give the government money. It's to get money from themselves so they can go to the grocery store and pay the rent. And the government makes this difficult by taking some of it away in, in income taxes. So there's actually so there's actually like a funny long history of, of taxation in the world where we figured out how to do that. So we didn't have to put so many people in jail just for the crime of being not being able to make the payment. Margaret Thatcher actually experimented with bringing back a poll tax in the late yeah, 80s. Yeah, I remember the riots. And, yeah. and I don't know how much it was. It wasn't very much, you know, $1,000 a year or something equivalent. Yeah. And it was a total disaster. There were riots and Thatcher ended up yeah. being kicked out. You know, she lost her post as prime minister largely as a result because people see you were hot stuff 10 years ago, but now you're doing, this is really stupid. There's no reason yeah. to do this. So, so anyway, um, it's just kind of funny that there is this long history of taxes like that and how the Western world learned not to do that. And then it pops up in Stephanie Kelders. Oh, this is what we do. <laughs> just on that, I want to, I want to, uh, just as you're talking, I just want to say to people, I've been reading Dominic Frisbee's Daylight yes. Robbery, and I recommend this book. He's a great writer and a very interesting human, but it's called Daylight Robbery because you were talking about poll taxes. Going back centuries, they were trying to figure out, they used to have a half tax. They used to go, we're going to tax you based on the number of fireplaces in your house yeah. in, in the United Kingdom. So then people would start blocking up their chimneys and getting asphyxiated and getting all sorts of... and people then it was yeah yeah. well then it was we're gonna if we can't tax them on their hearths or their hearths we're gonna tax them on their windows so this is where the daylight robbery idea came from people started boarding up their windows to stop being taxed by the number of windows and they reckon this led to all sorts of emphysema and other problems in london because people weren't getting fresh air so let's not pretend the government over the centuries has covered itself in glory when it comes to this sort of stuff. So yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's a really interesting discussion, which, which I've only, only the last two years or so, I've more fully appreciated the incredible, amazing invention of modern taxes, 20th century taxes, like the retail sales tax. Britain had to do this crazy stuff, like charging people under windows because they didn't have a, a modern retail sales tax. So, yeah, so there's a real interesting uh, discussion there. And we've talked about this before, so I reference people back to, I think, the first discussion you and I did where you give us some great stuff on flat taxes. In summary? Oh, so so I, I, I do want to bring up, there, there was two parts to your question, and I was getting ready for the second part. And that is, you know, all that argument, before you can pay the taxes, the government must have created the money you can pay the taxes with. Okay. But there, again, it's, that's it. It's just like a creative kid in the back of the class or something. There's no discussion of what actually happens, which is the U.S. government was out of the money creation business until the introduction of the Federal Reserve in 1913. So what were they doing before 1913? Yeah, it's a great question. In those days, money consisted of gold and silver coins. And and there was a U.S. mint, but uh, it wasn't paper money. You had to get the silver out of the ground. And all they did is it wasn't. The, it was full weight coins. The, the market value of the coinage was the same as the gold and silver contained, just like a Kruger hand. So how where did the money come from in those days? It came from a gold mine. <laughs> That's where it came from. And also there were private banks and thousands of private banks, like stable currencies, stable coin cryptocurrencies today, issued their own paper money. And to some degree, this could be used because relatively reliable government tax office would say, I know those guys, I'll, I'll take their bank notes. Yeah. Um, so there is actually a history about this, and we know what it is. And just characteristic of this book in general is that they just have this sort of 
wiseacre back of the classroom question and don't even bother with the history of what it actually is, right? Because <laughs> wasn't that period from about 1860 through till the start of the Federal Reserve, I could be wrong on this, but in terms of real incomes and prosperity, it was a pretty good time in American history, wasn't it? The Civil War kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> and, and, and the chaos, the, the Reconstruction period that came after. But when they, when, yes, when they, especially soon after the Civil War, things really took off. That was when the United States went from its sort of westward expansion, which is really agrarian, it was really a subsistence farming, to the incredible industrial expansion we had in the second half of the 19th century, where, and you know, Britain had been the great industrial leader until then, and, and the United States was just a little house in the prairie. It was mm-hmm. gone to the west with a covered wagon, while British were building railroads and steamships. In that second half of the 19th century, the United States really took the lead because the United States had the most dynamic economy, it had the lowest taxes, uh, had the most reliable currency, and amazing things were done. Um, in the 1880s, they were building 7,000 miles of railroad a year yeah. with hand tools. There's no electricity, hand tools, right? Pickaxes and shovels. So laying down 7,000 miles of railroad a year. How many, rail- how many miles of railroad did we lay down the last year? 300 maybe. I think US infrastructure, I was reading, I think actually it was in Kelton's book. She said it's, it's rated a D plus or something at the moment in, in terms of some of that infrastructure fatigue. But so what, give us your summary on this tabs and stabs thing. Is this a case of this MMT idea of a descriptive modality by which I, she's just saying, look, we're just describing what's actually happening. We're, the government is spending first. Do you think that's what's happening at the moment? Is, is she correct on that, that the spending happens first so that people have the currency to pay the tax? No. It pretty much, now you remember, you know, although you could, you, if you just consider the Federal Reserve to be part of the government and some of the internal accounting of the Federal Reserve to be like the Social Security Trust Fund, it's an internal accounting convention. You can kind of torture things a little bit to make it look that way. But oddly enough, they don't. That was one of the things I was getting ready for, right? Yeah, I think I know what they're going to write about. But they didn't. They don't really go down that path. But if you just take it at face value, like I said, it's every dollar that goes into the... I do not think in the history of the Federal Reserve, the, even during some pretty goofy periods during World War I and World War II and some other funny times, I don't think they ever just gave them the money. That's the principle of, of central bank independence. and. Another thing is the Federal Reserve is, you know, was founded as a private institution. It was not yeah. part of the government. Some people think it did become part of the government in 20, 2015 when, for some reason, federalreserve.org, their official website, became federalreserve.gov, and the .org website disappeared forever. No, because we don't even know who the shareholders are. Like, the, the actual list of shareholders of the U.S. Fed is, is unknown. Uh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's unknown. I think it's uh, I think it's the big banks are the main. So it's primary dealers, but yeah, I, uh, they're, they're very they're very quiet about it. I'm not sure it's a complete mystery, but but often when you look into these things, it's not really what you think it is. For example, the Bank of England was founded as a private institution, entirely private institution. No fictions about oh we're part of the government, and then it got nationalized in 19 in the 40s, 1940. Anyway, around the 1940s. But if you actually look into it, the Bank of England is owned by some like society of lawyers. 
And we so I, think it's on, I think it's I think it's on the Bank of England. It's, it's a known thing. It's not my guessing. It, it's but the actual shares are held by this like society of lawyers. Well, sounds I, very trustworthy. That's not the government of Britain, is it? It's, oh, but it's really nationalized. It's just there's steps in between. Oh, are there really? <laughs> well, well, we can we can anyway, trust that. Yeah, and to return to our point, I know a fair amount about these things. I've written a number of books about monetary economics and Federal Reserve, and I don't think there's one example of the Federal Reserve just giving the money to government. There are some examples where the Federal or the government would have its regular bond auction to the primary dealers, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, and within a very short period of time, maybe minutes, the very same bonds, the very same QCIPs ended up on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Yeah. Uh, so you say, well, that smells bad, but they kept up with appearances. Just on that, I'm going to see if I can find this quote that really jumped out at me yesterday. It was just before I was finishing yesterday, she was describing this relationship between the primary dealer banks, the Treasury, the Fed, and she described it as a perfectly choreographed water ballet. I'm not sure Jeff Schneider would agree with that. We don't want to go down this rabbit hole particularly, but is it a perfectly choreographed water ballet at the moment in terms of reverse repos and the repo market in general and collateral? Is it? Let's not go flying down that rabbit hole, but yeah. does the term perfectly choreographed water ballet resonate for you? It just looks like they're making stuff up as they go along, yeah. <laughs> flying by the seat of their pants. Now they got a trillion dollars, uh, a pretty big amount of money, a trillion bucks, in reverse repos, and nobody said that was going to happen, and there's no plan, and there's what the heck's going on here. And Trust us, we're I, from the government. Yeah, and a re- reverse repo is literally what it means is the Fed borrows money. It's like, what? Yeah. You make the money, why are you borrowing money for and what, what they, the reason they do it is it actually sucks money out of the sucks economy. Sucks money out of the system, yeah. But it, it's, there is a reason why reverse repos didn't really exist until a few years ago. It's because well, yeah, why does the Federal Reserve have to borrow money? Right? So oh. it's the whole thing, it's got this whole you know, making it up as you go along quality. But to kind of, to kind of I, th- I think we should say something about the bigger picture in, in, in which this all takes place. And that is obviously the Federal Reserve uh, does create money. And if we just assume, forget about some of these subtleties, like who owns the Federal Reserve, and we just assume it, we'll just call it part of the government for argument's sake. But they've been creating money for, since 1913. So there's some truth to that. And, and this money creation, because they buy government bonds, essentially amounts to government paying its bills with banknotes coming off the printing press. More or less, that's what it amounts to. With a few steps removed, which would be which is worth talking about. What's really happened in the last few years, beginning two thousand nine. My my interpretation, and I think events have shown that my interpretation is pretty sound. Is a funny thing back in the old days, before nineteen sixty, and for a century before nineteen sixty, it was normal banking practice for banks to have about ten percent of their assets as cash. Literally banknotes, literally gold coins, because if they had to make some payments, you know, someone said, I want to withdraw some money from my account, they had to have something to give them. Otherwise, they had to have to shut the doors of the bank. And so the regular banking practice was to hold about 10% of their assets in cash. And 
then the Federal Reserve was created in, in 1913. And one of the functions of it is to settle interbank payments. And, and thus, this cash became Federal Reserve deposits. And so the bank clearinghouses, they literally deposited their gold coins at the Fed. So that cash was Federal Reserve deposits, part of base money. And then what happened after they didn't they weren't making any money on this cash, right? Just like twenty it, it was it was the exact equivalent of having a shoebox full of twenty dollars for a private citizen. And that they weren't making any ten percent of the balance sheet. Let's just say that's a billion dollars. And if you're you could have loaned that out at seven percent, where you're giving up seventy million dollars, is that right? Seventy million dollars a year in interest income. If you're a ambitious young ma manager at a bank, you might think of ways to get that seven seventy million dollars, right? So after 1960, the, the banks figured out many ways to run down their cash accounts by having this what they created the money market didn't really exist before. The money market was banks have only have one percent of their balance sheet in cash. And if something came up, they could just borrow the money from the from other banks. That's the money market, and it's just like having a credit card. We only have forty bucks in banknotes in our wallet, and it's okay because if something comes up, I could put it on a credit card, and it's basically the same idea. Until your credit cards get canceled, which is what happened in two thousand eight. Banks all canceled each other's credit cards, and they had to do they had to make do with the cash in their till, which would, by that time was almost nothing, and that's why the banking system almost melted down because nobody can make any payments. So bankers got together after 2009. They said, you know what? That was stupid. <laughs> but the reason we got down that path is because we were all trying to maximize our profits, right? Because if one manager is conservative, another manager says, no, let's lend out the money and make $70 million. The guy who makes the 70 million bucks tends to win over time, as long as there's no crisis. So they said, well, we're going to have to... We can't just say it's a nice idea. We're going to have to make it a regulation so that we all have to do it. And because it's a level playing field, it'll be okay. This is Basel 3, what, right? And this is Basel 3, which went in, two, in November 2010. And, and they phased that in. And, and while this was happening, that's when the they ha banks all had to get their cash levels back up. And that was QE and the first round of discount lending in 2008, 2009. They said they weren't able to borrow from each other. So they all had to go to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, can you loan me some money? And the Federal Reserve loaned them about $2 trillion or whatever it was. And so in the, in, as this was all happening, the Federal Reserve essentially, uh, at first they had the discount lending and then they started to buy, they regularized it by buying bonds. That was QE, MBS, and government bonds. So the Federal Reserve started buying government bonds, a lot of them. So that banks would have this cash. And so the, the amount of bonds that the Federal Reserve was buying went from a little bit for, mm. related to economic growth to this big slug because they had this new regulatory structure and this new, these new needs. And the, without a whole lot of discussion or theory, the political system picked up on it real quick. And at the same time, that's when... Congress Obama, under Obama in the recession of 2009-2010 spent 12% of GDP deficit. Yeah. And until that moment, the biggest deficit since World War II was five point something percent. Mm. And they just 
went to 12 because the Federal Reserve was buying bonds of about the same size. And, and so yeah, so some, somehow, without even like a lot of rational discussion, they just figured it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> somehow in the political system and somehow in Washington there, because I don't think they really could explain it in the sensible way we're talking about it here. And that is what has been going on until really the present. Even at the end of 2019, there was a major shortage of bank reserves. And so in the midst of COVID, not only did or there various increases in demand for money, but the Fed had to had to catch up. They had to fill that hole. They had to make up that deficit that they had at the end of 2019. So they, again, they had a huge slug of money that kind of came out of the Fed. And now that's all been topped up. Now today, all these Basel requirements, Basel three that began in 2010 were phased into 2019. But even in 2019, they hadn't fully caught up yet, and, and so. Only at the beginning of 2021, they finally got caught up. And now we're at the stage where we're done. We, it was like this one-time adjustment to pre-1960 style bank management. And, and MMT ha has arisen in that environment. There's not a breath, there's not a single sentence in the book about what I just said. <laughs> uh, but it's like the politicians, the Washington, D.C. version, and, and Stephanie Kelton was the economist for the Democratic Party in D.C. during that time. Yeah. It's kind of the D.C. version of, I don't know why, but we can just spend money like crazy and the Federal Reserve buys the stuff and it seems like there's no consequences. It's like, uh, it's just like an amoeba going towards the sugar or something like that. There's not, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So the the that was uh, your encapsulation of the 2008 crisis in about two sentences is one of the best I've ever heard. It was when you said the banks started cancelling each other's credit cards. That was excellent. It was because often you try to explain the mechanics of the GFC and people are like, <clears throat> but that was excellent. Now we should wrap up because I'm going to I've got a tribe of. Lockdown, homeschooling, children, all about, all about to hit Zoom at the same time in a few minutes. But I wanted to ask you, there's just in this first chapter, we, we can talk a little bit about taxation, but she says that the only real issue with MMT isn't deficits. She constantly says deficits are relevant. We've got to stop thinking about deficits completely. The government's not like a household. It can spend, blah, blah, blah. She says the only limit is, she would say, inflation, and then she says resource constraints. Right, the right. So the, the quote she uses is she says, MMT is not about removing all limits. It's not a free lunch. It's about replacing our current approach, one obsessed with budget outcomes, with one that prioritizes, wait for it, human outcomes, while at the same time recognizing and respecting our economy's real resource constraints. Talk to us a little bit about MMT and inflation and the idea of what happens when MMT hits up against genuine resource constraints. By that, it just seems, it seems that advanced economies are becoming less and less productive. So at what point does the expansion of the money supply, the inflationary implications hit up against the fact that there's just less and less being produced. So over to you, inflation, resource constraints, what are you thinking? 
Yeah, that, that was real. That, that gets into the second chapter, which it kind of elucidates our ideas a little more accurately and a little more uh, detail. But what the book really amounts to is once you say we can just print the money, then, and she goes into this in, in very overtly, if you can spend the money, but you don't have to go through all the unpleasantness of taxes and debt issuance and paying off the debt and paying interest on the debt. If you could just spend the money, but not have to raise the money, and she uses those exact words, there's hardly any problem in the world that can't be solved by spending money. In the first instance, we could all be, we can all have a good job and a living wage and healthcare and in schools that probably just as bad as today, but teachers get paid more money, all these things. So, so in, in a sense, a lot of the, the second half of the book is, is just a wish list of things that you want to spend money on. Yeah. So it, it's the first two chapters that, that get into the rationales for all this. And, and, and it's funny because there's this black and there's this uh, sort of like good cop, bad cop tone to the book. Like, oh, we have restraints. But then a couple of paragraphs later, she's talking about this federal jobs program that's going to give employ 12 million people or something like that. Right? Yeah. She has numbers, uh, her numbers, not mine. And a Green New Deal, and, and the list goes on and on, on, right? But I was getting ready. I, these various arguments, they've been around a long, they've been around 200 years. People were talking about this in 1807, and I read those books, or at least. And I was getting ready for things that I thought were going to be in there. And, and the funny thing is, it's just, it's not even monetary at all. There's a book about monetary economics without like hardly a paragraph about monetary economics in it. What it is, this Keynesian economics, or, or, little, or, or post-war Keynesian economics, economics of the 1940s and 1950s, which was developed when there was a gold standard system. And so their hands were tied on monetary topics. And so it was, they all they focused entirely on, on fiscal government spending. And so the idea of, of resource constraints is that post-war Keynesian economics, and she cites some direct influences. I don't remember their names, but she talks about them. It was very strongly in the United States, it was very strongly affected by World War II and the gigantic amount of government spending for World War II and the deficits were running at 25% of GDP and all the jobs that resulted. And, yeah, I remember assigning that. And the increase in business and all these things and some of the price increases that also resulted because people had a job and there were wartime shortages and, and so forth. So basically, she says that we can just print money willy-nilly as long as there's unemployment. That's basically like the resource constraint, right? Hmm. <laughs> what? You just go in any hyperinflationary country, unemployment rate in Venezuela is under 14% or so. doesn't seem to have any, and they have hyperinflation. So I guess that's not really a constraint, is it? But we never hear, we never hear a breath about any of the many counterexamples in history of, of very high, it doesn't have to be hyperinflation, but very high inflation and unemployment at the same time, like the 1970s in the United States, where all that Keynesian stuff blew up because they could no longer rely on a stable currency, was not assumed anymore. So that's, it was, and I think we, can, we could talk about this in greater detail sometime in the future, but it was really interesting to see that it's the arguments were not monetary at all. They were just, it's just wishful thinking. As long as there's some unemployment. Now, in, in her, later on in the book, she says, well, we're going to hire all the underemployed people and 
and give them jobs at the federal government. We're going to hire 12 million people. And in that way, and we're going to pay them $15 an hour and give them healthcare benefits and daycare and all this, all these nice goodies. And essentially the private market to, to, to bid away that labor from the government is going to have to pay more than that. Yeah. That's the idea that she presents later on. So basically her version of resource constraints is if there's any people in this federal employment program, which she says will have tens of millions of people in it in the first instance, then there's pretty money willy-nilly, for example, for the federal unemployment program is not going to have any, is not going to have any consequences. And again, it's just put out there. Just totally, I was a little surprised, right? I thought you would hear some interesting but wrong arguments, but it was just, it's just like, uh, it's total fantasy, but it has an interesting history. I don't know of the intellectual history of, of American arising out of World War II and as it existed in the 1950s, which she draws on a number of places throughout the book. Let me ask you, we got to wrap up, but I've got two listener questions that came in during the week that people wanted to ask you, so I'll ask you those in a sec. While I bring them up, what is your off-the-cuff analysis of where this is going to head? Let's, we, 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 if we keep drinking this Kool-Aid, where, where are we going? For me, as a neophyte, how it doesn't just distort markets, drive inflation, and just the can gets kicked down the road indefinitely to some kind of implosion. Tell me what I'm missing. Like, where do you think this MMT thesis eventually goes? That's an interesting question because it's we're right there now. And like I said, my interpretation, my, and, I, and I think this is being more broadly appreciated too, is that we had this one-time adjustment to a new banking regulatory system where we said we made rules that said banks have to own a lot of cash and the cash didn't exist before. So we had to make it or else it's, it's like musical chairs that banks holidays had required to sit in the chair, but it didn't exist. So central banks had to create the money. And that's basically what happened from 2009 to really just the beginning of this year, 2021. And along the way, they bought a huge amount of government bonds. And this indirectly did finance approximately $5 trillion of deficit spending by the United States government. Some of the things that are going on in the Eurozone with like negative interest rates and, and some of the things that are going on in Japan are, doesn't quite fit this model of banking regulation, but it, it fits pretty well in the United States. So now we're at that point where... We can't just finance double-digit deficits with money printing. At least not in the at least not in the prior model. There there actually are some ways to get away with it, and 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 Japan's doing them. Basically, you just stuff it. You just stuff more on the banks over over their regulatory requirements, and you just twist their arms to, to make them do it. There are things you can do, but we're now at the point where and, and it's actually potentially quite explosive because it's what you find when you look what really happens in the real world. It's not a thing like where if money creation goes up 10% and nominal GDP goes up 5%, then you get there's 5% too much money and, and inflation goes up 5%, which is kind of a monetary framework. It doesn't work like that. 
or you know, the value of the currency, the value of dollar drops 5%. If, if at some point, if people see where this is going, they're going to say, get me the heck out of here. And that is when you can see currencies drop in value a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happened in the early 1970s. In the early 1970s, Nixon abandoned gold yesterday. It was the 50th anniversary, August yeah. 15, 1971. And actually, and actually, he had technically abandoned in 1968 the collapse of London Gold Pool. But he was just saying, all he did is he said on TV, we're just not going to worry about that anymore. The dollar is linked to gold at $35 an ounce. The Bretton Woods system, the gold standard, we're just not going to worry about it temporarily. Yeah, but he promised us it would be temporary. And it, it actually was. That's an interesting, uh, there's, a long, there's an interesting discussion there, but we'll have to skip that now. We're just, and that, it, it was the spectacle of the political system saying, we don't care anymore. And the value of dollar went from $35 an ounce in 1970. And in 1971, when he made that announcement, it was about $45 an ounce. And it went to about when it, 80 in 1974. So if you just do the math, it took five times more dollars to buy an ounce of gold, which means pretty much the dollar fell about 80% in value. Five to one, uh, that dollar was worth 20 cents, right? Mostly because of the implosion of confidence. You call it, it's called confidence. It's much more rational than that. They just see the currency being abandoned. The currency is going down. And they say, let's... I'm out of here. And that obviously that, that jumping in the lifeboats causes the currency to decline more and, and so on and so forth. So just the, just going, it, it largely amounted to just Nixon just going on TV and just saying that the, the Federal Reserve really wasn't printing very much money in those days. It was a, a little bit, but not much. A little aggressive, but not too much. And so I, if we keep talking like this, there's a potential for that kind of event to happen. And then the next thing that happens is the difference between the 1970s and today is 1970s, the debt to GDP was about so 35%. Now we're 130 today. 130, yeah. And, and the deficit was maybe like 1% of GDP. And we're talking, it's going to come down, but we're talking about 5%. Oh. Plus there's this huge spending package in, in US Congress, which could bump it up to 6 7 8%. And what really kills currencies, the way governments get into hyperinflation is something like this happens, right? The currency falls out of bed and they're no longer able to finance a deficit. No one's going to buy their bonds or at a price interest rate that's unacceptable, Dif you know, becomes very difficult. And then they step up and say, okay, we're a trillion dollars short. <laughs> we're a trillion dollars short. We can't sell the bonds. We got all these, we got to make payroll, got to pay the military, got to send out social security checks. Where's the money going to come from? And they go to the central bank and they print the money. And it wasn't really a plan. No one got it. There was no cabinet meeting. Said, oh, you know what? Let's have hyperinflation. They dealt with the difficulties of the day. And then what happens next is everyone sees not only did they have this earlier collapse, but now they're printing the money to pay for the deficit. So you know, then there's an additional collapse. So yeah, that's the kind of situation that, whether it be the United States or Britain or Europe or Japan or, or around, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to happen this year. But there, I, 
there's a risk of that in the next, let's say, three years. Yeah, that's what I've been thinking. Let me ask you these two viewer questions. First one was, you've been asked, MMT implies that a central bank will supply base money to meet the demand for it, thus conceptually implying that gold could remain stable if a perfect match. What do they get wrong with their insights? In a sense, yes, if, because when the Federal Reserve buys bonds and expands the monetary base, it does indirectly finance the government. They don't hand a shoebox of a trash bag full of $20 bills to the government, but the government issues the bonds and it comes back into the government, disappears from the publicly held debt by going on to Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Yes, if you call that monetization process, the money creation process, MMT, which in a sense it sort of is, then you know, the Federal Reserve's job is to have just the right amount of MMT, to, to monetize just the right amount of debt in the past to maintain a gold standard system. They did this under the gold standard system. The, the monetary base in the United States before the Fed, but between 1775 and 1900 increased by over 160 times. So you can have that monetary expansion on a gold standard system or in, in the context of floating fiat currencies that aren't too shabby, as we had for the last 50 years. So yeah, that could work. But the, the critical point, and, and George Selgin and Cato Institute wrote a book about this, is essentially central bank independence. Central banks have had the independence to say, we want to create this much money and no more because in our good judgment, that's the right thing to do. And they don't have very good judgment. But the point is, there's no direct connection between that process and the government financing process, right? No one in the government said, we want to have free subsidized daycare, and therefore, we're going to twist your arm to create $100 billion to pay for it. It's when, you have, when that starts to happen, when central bank independence is lost, that's when you can get into big trouble. And that's essentially what the Kelton book's all about, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Are we there? Would you, do you still see Jay Powell and friends as truly independent? That is what this reverse repo thing is about. They were on the schedule to print a taper. They were going to taper later, but let's just say for the end, until the end of the year, not a lot of taper expectations before the end of the year. There was this treasury drawdown, treasury spending money it already had on, on the books, and then the QE that was on the schedule, which they have been doing. And it, was, it amounted to $2.5 trillion during calendar 2021. And that was money that was essentially created out of nothing. Hmm. And like I said, it's like an amoeba going towards the sugar, right? In the environment where the Fed Reserve itself, on pretty much like the official agenda, this regular schedule said, we're going to create $2.5 trillion out of thin air, and the government would benefit from this indirectly. Congress just happens to be running all these crazy spending programs this year. And what has happened with the reverse repo is they managed to cancel that out. So they actually did create the money under the official agenda, and then they took it back out with the reverse repos, which is like this you know, little trick behind the scenes. And, uh, and now they're talking about tapering and all this stuff. 
more aggressively because they realize that they're in, in trouble. And so we're right at that moment, right? Over the next 12 months, maybe, where Congress thinks that everything's good and the Fed's saying, oh, we changed our mind. <laughs> and, and they're acting on it. But even, even what, so even what they're doing now, they're going to they're gonna try to, they're moving toward wriggling out of this QE commitment, tapering. It's kind of like this long, drawn-out process. Even with the taper, they're planning to create trillions and trillions of dollars more money, let's say at least. And so it, it, it'll be interesting. You know, this, and they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna come, come under pressure from Congress and all, all the discussions that happen in D.C. Because all of D.C. is just a bunch of people talking to each other. Extraordinary to watch. Like I, that's the problem. This with no political partisanship, President Biden seems to be in, a, in quite extraordinary cognitive decline. <laughs> so it's almost yeah. as if these confluence of forces. It's almost that perfect storm where there's. Yeah, it's quite a seismic moment, I think. And you're right. Over sometime in this next three years, the number of times people ask, I guess people like you and me, hey, when do you think it's going to happen? I, Next Tuesday at 4.36, the markets will collapse. No. So let me ask you this final question from one of the listeners said, money is not well. Why do MMT adherents not understand this? I'm wondering if they mean currency is not wealth, but the question is phrased as money is not wealth. Why do MMT adherents not understand this? Actually, MMT, as presented by Kelton, goes along those lines. It's a, it's a confused argument, but she makes a similar sort of argument. It's, like, it's just it's paper. It's just computer entries. What really counts is people showing up for work and making goods and services. And we have all these unemployed people. So why don't we just, why don't we just fiddle the numbers and print the money? It's all this you know, imaginary data so that we can put these people to work. Like the whole book, <laughs> right there. <laughs> you got to write and, a you, <laughs> and, Cliff, yeah, Notes, and, Cliff Notes version, <laughs> one paragraph. And, um, yeah, and it, it has no, you know, a little. You know, the, the problem is that you know, the money and the way it works. It's a real thing in the real world. You don't just get to make up stuff out of thin air, like you're writing a comic book or something. You know, it's like writing science fiction. People get everyone's get into trouble when they do this stuff. And yeah, it uh, takes it, it takes me back to the reason I got into this when I was running those marathons a year or two ago, listening to George Gilder's book. I think it was Life After Google, maybe. Or Yeah. Um, George is a great runner, by the way. <laughs> yeah. He's still just out there. He's, I saw a video of him speaking last week and his thesis around the relationship between that money is and its relationship with time in terms of the thesis that regardless of CapEx, gold extraction costs remain relatively stable. And the idea that real wealth, real money has a relationship with the time involved in its creation where a couple of keystrokes on Liberty Avenue can create a trillion dollars in a fraction of a second. It's interesting just how divorced from the classical understanding of wealth and money we've come. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the Federal people, the Federal Reserve, actually read my stuff because with this reverse repo thing and, and some other events that have happened over the years, I just wrote about that. 
it's really interesting that they're taking this they're, they're taking this action as if I was in a meeting in Washington DC and, and we mm-hmm. talked about it, which never happened. But they're just reacting as if it, we did. Because I was saying that if these guys are in trouble, if they don't cut the stuff out in a jiffy, they're you know might be might be serious problems. And poof, yeah. reverse repos appear. <laughs> um, but. Well, I love listening yeah. to you and Jeff Schneider. I listened to, I don't know if you've heard Jeff's podcast with Emil Kalinowski is just brilliant. And I listen to you sometimes. I listen to Jeff and the dark arts of the repo market is just, uh, it's the, ne- the netherworlds of shadow finance. It's fascinating stuff. It really is. I, would, I will not pretend to say I understand its, uh, its many permutations, but it's a crucial topic. All right. So that'll get us through this week as we've opened up the Pandora's box of the deficit myth. We're going to have Kirill on Kirill Sokolovsky on Friday night, and you and I might do another episode next week. And just, I was going to say we do a chapter a week, and I'm not being um, facetious, but we can probably knock the rest of it over in an episode. I think. I think. Yeah. You're the, right the, to- once you get past the second chapter, which goes <laughs> into the in the rationales, like why we can print money willy nilly. Once you accept that, then of course you're going to have a government spending program for every possible thing under the stars. Yeah, I like, I like to apply the, I like to <laughs> re- apply the 10-year-old thesis. One of my daughters is 10, and I'm like, if I explain MMT to her, when she says, but that doesn't make sense, I know that <laughs> I'm, probably, I'm probably onto something. So, all right, Nathan, as always, yeah. thank you so much for your time. You just bring such a, a great breadth of knowledge, and I know that uh, there's such depth in what we've discussed today and what you've brought. So thank you again, and we'll uh, look forward to having you back on next week. Thank you. It's great talking with you. Well, hey, everybody. Jonathan with you again. Listen, I really hoped you enjoyed that. There's so much depth. There's so much quality every time we get Nathan on the show. So I really hope you enjoyed it. Please make sure you've subscribed wherever you're seeing this or hearing this. It'd be great to uh, keep sending you these really important discussions and interviews. If you want to get on our regular list, just go to supplysidepodcast.com and you can pop your details in there. At the time I've just recorded this, in a few days we've got uh, Mr. Kirill Sokolov coming on the show Friday night, one of the most respected and well-known macro investors of the last decades. So excited to have him on the show, so please make sure you've subscribed so we can get that episode to you. That's it from me. We'll see you for the next episode.